let's go ahead and get started. So I've got a lot of material to get through tonight, and um, if you don't know, my wife's on bed rest for two weeks in the hospital, so after this I'm going straight back over there and I'm watching the kids for three weeks. So, um, well actually two weeks, so. <laughs> exactly, because we're having a baby. So, anyways. Um, so, what, what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to go through Acts 17 and talking about Paul's encounter with the Athenians. So, um, we're going to start in about verse 16. So, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts 17, and um, the verse I have is Roman for today is Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for all your many blessings. And I just thank you for this time that we have together tonight. Maybe honoring uh, to you, maybe glorify you, and just um, help us to leave, just remembering that everything needs to be rooted in the gospel, that it's all about Jesus, which is exactly the what Element Church is going through right now in the sermon series. And just uh, thank you again for all your many blessings. In your precious name, amen. So I titled this uh, tonight, God Clashes with Athens. So last week, Aaron talked about uh, man being, by nature, uh, a worshiper. And in everything they do, it's an outpouring of worship. And that, the God, that God is a God of distinctions, which we've been talking about this whole idea of paganism and oneism and how it blurs the distinctions. Um, Aaron mentioned that paganism is the ideology, whereas idolatry is the activity, so you have environmentalism, you've got uh, idolatry in movies, music, you know, you have these guys sitting out in the movie theaters waiting overnight uh, just to see a movie. John Calvin said that everyone, even from, the, from being born, even from their mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. Aaron also mentioned uh, about Christendom and about how Christendom was more about like a moral framework, and that not everybody that was involved in Christendom was a believer, because a lot of it was just about our moral goodness and kind of this moral framework. And then he went into uh, mentioning about persecution, and there was questions about persecution and how how we react to that, and um, persecute a little bit of persecution uh, under in China, and like how you know. Should the church work? You know, how should a church here react to persecution? I like this quote by Tim Keller. He says, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of, a little bit of background of, um, of the passage we're going to read, uh, the background of Athens, kind of paint this backdrop of it. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read through the verses. I'm going to have the verses up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible... Or, um, you know, in, or a Bible app. You can read it on the screen. And then I'm going to go ahead and uh, draw out about eight points, uh, just implications for us, what we can draw out of those passages. So let me start with the background. 
Athens in its prime was probably the greatest city to ever have ever existed, especially in its philosophy. Almost every building there was dedicated to some god or was a shrine to a god. So you have the great temple of Athena, better known as the Parthenon. You had, I don't know if anybody here has been to Greece, but uh, this, obviously these are all in Athens. The Erechtheion, dedicated to multiple deities. You had temple to goddess Roma and Emperor Augustus. Uh, Petronius, who was a Roman courtier under uh, the Emperor Nero, he, he was a court official. He said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a person. Um, Athens was also had some of the greatest orders to ever have lived. So Raphael's painting the School of Athens. You have Socrates on the far right. He's kind of wearing the, the tan. He's facing that direction. You have uh, Plato, who's pointing up to the ceiling. You have Aristotle, who was Plato's disciple. He's carrying his book, Ethics, right there. So it's kind of like the dream team of Greek, uh, of Greek philosophy there. And that painting actually has many more philosophers within it, but those are the three main ones. You have the Areopagus, where Paul spoke, where his main sermon's at that we'll be reading about. It's also called Hill of Ares, which is dedicated to Ares, the Greek god of war. It's also called Mars Hill, which is what I'm, what I'm going to refer to it from now on, because I think we're a little more familiar with that, and it's just a little bit easier to say. It rises about 377 feet above land. It is near the Agora, or the marketplace. This is where, uh, first of all, Paul first interacts with the Jews at the synagogues. That's always his, uh, what he does. He first uh, reasons with the Jews from the scriptures in the synagogues, and then he'll go to the Greeks. And that's usually al- always the way he works. But the Agora is where you'll see him uh, starting to talk with the Greek philosophers. And the Agora was where they did a lot of commerce, where there's a lot of uh, talk about military and politics. It's very similar. If you've ever been to Slow Farmer's Market, it's very similar to that. So Amanda and I went to the Slow Farmer's Market maybe six months ago with some friends, and we're walking by, and there was kettle corn being sold. There was uh, a lot of different restaurants with their booths up selling different foods. And I saw a Baptist church booth, and then right next to the Baptist church booth was an atheist booth. And so you had this, these mixtures of ideas as well as things being sold. So that's kind of the idea of the Agora. Mars Hill is where meetings took place for the courts. It was the highest court for criminal and religious matters. All, it's, it's, it's not an overstatement to say all the rest of the world was influenced by Athens. Corinth was the capital of Greece, but Athens has really influenced the world with its philosophy. So we'll see Paul interact with two major philosophical groups, the Stoics. They were pantheistic. Everything is divine, and everyone's treated like gods. They have this idea that the Logos, which I'll talk about a little bit later, the Logos, there's a divine portion of the Logos in every person. There's a fatalism and a determinism. Philosophy was the way of life. It wasn't just an idea, but it was the way of life. Human ethics is the most important thing. So there's a poem here. I don't know if you guys have seen. Actually, this is Mars Hill right here. So if you've never seen, oops. There's Mars Hill there where Paul spoke. And to the right there, there's a little uh, plaque there, and that actually has the inscriptions of Paul's sermon. 
It's that right there, so it's all in Greek. So, but I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Invictus. There's a poem in there that's very stoic in, in its wording. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So today, how do you relate that today is the paganism, the oneism. Um, it's very, it's the, the ideas behind the divinity within everybody that's very, that's very pagan, very oneness. You could also, there's also strains of Stoic philosophy. You can see it in the military. Because in Stoic philosophy, the goal is to rise above all emotions, to be completely emotionless. And that's kind of the whole goal, like don't show any emotions so here's an example of Stoic, Spock. That's my boxer, Marley. She has a very Stoic face. You can't tell if she's smiling, laughing. The only way you can tell is uh, if you see the rest of her body because when she's excited, the whole rest of her body's moving, but her head stays the same, and she always looks Stoic. The second philosophical group that we encounter is the Epicureans. Live it up because tomorrow we die. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.32, What do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's actually referencing back to Isaiah 22.14. So I have that passage there as well. They were materialists, so they rejected supernatural intervention. They were originally a challenge against Platonism, but later major opponents of Stoicism. They were Stoics and Epicureans were the two major philosophical groups at that time. Everything happens by chance. No one's running the show. Rationalists. Death was the end of everything. There was no resurrection. They were very much like deists. Pleasure is the main purpose of life for the Epicureans. So I have a quote here by Aldous Huxley. I won't go through the whole quote because I had to read it about five times just to understand what he was saying. But what he's saying in here is he's got his motive and many other philosophical motives of friends that he works with is to try to get away from having any kind of moral obligation to be able to live however they want to live. So they had this philosophy of the meaningless of life and how life is meaningless to free them to be able to do what they want to do. And so I'm just going to read this little part here. And, uh, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Aldous Huxley wrote uh, The Doors of Perception, where it was about acid trips. That's actually where the doors got the, their name, The Doors, was from Aldous Huxley. So, just a little interesting tidbit about him. Oscar Wilde, who was an Irish writer and poet, he lived a total life of debauchery, just really living it up, I guess. He, at the end of his life, it wasn't really that great, and he'll admit it. 
So any kind of any kind of sexual escapade anybody could think about, Oscar Wilde lived it. And he said, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know that it is. So there's a poem by Algernon Charles Swinburne called The Garden of Proserpine. And it says, from too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Then star nor sun shall waken, nor any change of light, nor sound of water shaken, nor any sound or sight, nor wintry leaves nor vernal, nor days nor things diurnal, only the sleep eternal and an eternal night. There is no resurrection. That's, that's the Epicurean idea. So today, how you could relate it today would be like today's uh, atheistic, materialist, Secular humans, uh, secular humanism, or Billy Madison. You guys all seen Billy Madison? Parties a lot. Does does absolutely nothing. Just drinks and parties, and uh, just lives it up. John Belushi, Animal House. A very epicurean his lifestyle. Uh, Amanda actually told me there's a website called Epicurean Food or Epicurean Eating, something like that, and it was it was all about eating for pleasure. That was what it was all about, was just eating for pleasure. And all you have to do is go over to my house at night, and you got Epicurean Eating for Pleasure. Speaking of the gods of Hagen and Das, ice cream. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read... Acts 17, 16 through 34. I'm going to get it up here on the slides here. I'm actually just going to read it from here. Starting in verse 16. Everybody there? Okay. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul's situation, we start in verse 16, but if you go back to the beginning of Acts, Paul was first persecuted in Thessalonica when he was uh, witnessing and sharing the gospel. The Jews learned about this, and they caused a riot. So Paul had to leave Thessalonica. He, he fleed over to Berea, and then the same Jews heard about him witnessing in Berea. So he left Berea, and he ended up going to Athens, and he was by himself. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy. When Paul saw all the idols, first of all, when Paul saw all the idols in the city, his spirit was provoked. The Greek word is paroxuno, which means to be aroused to anger, to burn with anger. Paul was all about the glory of God, and he had a zeal to see him glorified. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Philippians 2.9. Psalm 69.9, For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you follow me. And if you remember, that's also when Jesus cleanses the temple. You hear that mentioned. In John 2, 16 through 17, it says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Paul had a, he had a passion for seeing the glory of God, seeing in all things. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not one inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, Mine. Paul always started with the Jews, and he went to the Gentiles, as I said before. Notice he reasoned in Acts 17.2, he reasoned with the Jews from scriptures. Dialogami, which is where we get our word dialogue from. And so the faculty of reason God gave us to use. So we don't just throw reason out and, and think that reason is, is uh, mutually exclusive from faith. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers called Paul a babbler. The word is uh, spermologos. You can think of sperm, we think seed. And so what they were calling him is they were calling him pretty much a buffoon. He tosses around ideas. He tosses around ideas like a bird picks up seeds and spits them out and doesn't really have any idea what he's saying. They, didn't, they did not take him very seriously. There's another group that you kind of hear about in there where they were just thinkers who liked to hear new ideas. They weren't really interested in really hearing the gospel or what. They just wanted to hear these new ideas because they just liked to think them out. First, when he's on Mars Hill, he addresses the fact that they're religious. He he notices all of these uh, sculptures to gods that, that they're highly religious with all these 
idols all around, and they're just and it's it's hard to say whether or not he was he was saying it in a bad way or a good way if he was trying to compliment him first before getting into what he was going to say. Paul then takes the sculpture of the unknown God and shows them the true God. Paul presents God in the gospel. First, he establishes an entire worldview framework before he presents Christ in the resurrection. Because in establishing this framework, they would have he, he relates with them first off before bringing out something they're going to have no idea what he's talking about. He takes them back to the Genesis account that God made everything. He's not part of everything, as oneism would say. There's the creator and the creation. He made everything, and he's above everything. You can just imagine he's probably pointing out different shrines, pointing out the temples. I mean, he's right by the the Parthenon. not very far away, and there's just shrines everywhere. So he's probably even pointing these out as he's talking. The idea of God making all things went against the Stoic idea. So they're, this, they're probably, their ears are probably perking up right now because they think there's divinity within everything. The Epicureans, probably not so much right now. He, Paul also mentions Adam and how all mankind comes from Adam. The Stoics actually probably like this idea because the Stoics were all about ethics, about mankind being ethical. We're all in this, uh, in this brotherhood of mankind. Paul quotes their own philosophers. When he's talking about God, he says, In him we live and move and have our being. That's from the hymn to Zeus by Epinides, which is around 600 B.C. And then when he says, For we are indeed his offspring, still referring to God the Father, it's from Phenomena, Phenomena by the Stoic poet Aratus. And I'll, talk, I'll mention that. I'll talk about that a little bit later when I'm drawing out the points. Then Paul. Then there's a Paul's call to repentance. After explaining who God is and telling him the God who creates all other things, creator, creation, the distinction, he then makes a call to repentance, the gospel call. God's judgment and the time of his judgment is told. At this point, Paul shows that history is linear. It's not circular. Most of the Greek thought at the time was that history was circular. He's saying that there, is, there was a beginning, the Genesis account, and there will be a fulfillment. Paul proclaims Christ as being the one who is appointed to judge and who rose from the dead. Now this is where the Epicureans are thrown off. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. So they started to mock Paul at this point. Paul was cut short after bringing up the resurrection from the dead. I can imagine Paul was pretty uh, did not like that because this is procrastination. They're saying, "Okay, we want to listen to you again, so let's uh, come talk to us again later." And I would think Paul would be would be a little upset about it because he says in Second Corinthians six two, "In a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you." Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He wanted, to see, he wanted to see people change. He wanted to see people glorify God. But there is one good thing. Dionysius was a judge who um, converted to Christianity. He was a judge of the Areopagus, so he was a high-class citizen. And, by, and Eusebius first, uh, said that he was the first bishop of Athens. 
And when it talks about him following Paul, it's this idea of a gluing, too. He glued to Paul, and he went with Paul. And so that's how we get have a pretty good assumption that he did uh, convert to Christianity. So what now? What's the implication of this? The Apostle Paul was alone in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. As the missiologist Michael Frost says, we are exiles in a post-Christian context. Paul is alone. As exiles, we as Christians always need to go back to the most important story, and that's the gospel. That's that God came down as a man, fully man, fully God. He lived a perfect life under the law. He died on the cross, and he was buried and resurrected and rose from the dead. It's nothing that we did. There's, There's no righteousness of our own. That's the gospel. As Paul says that whatever gain I had, I counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not a righteousness of our own. That's the gospel. I was listening to Matt Chandler talk about 100. He was, he was doing a, a lecture on that from some Acts 29 lecture, and he said... Uh, He's a pastor over in Texas. And he said out of hundreds of testimonies of, at baptisms, he hears the same thing over and over and over again. And that's these people saying, I grew up in the church. I went to VBS. I did the Awana thing. I prayed the prayer. I checked the check boxes. I did everything a religious person is supposed to do. But only now did I actually hear the gospel. So we always need to go back to the gospel and know that there's nothing we can do to earn our, earn our way into heaven. There's nothing we can do to make God, God love us anymore. The Jews in Babylon was the same story. They, they were in exile in Babylon. And they were constantly reading and discussing their most important story. What do you think their most important story was? Anybody say the Exodus? The Exodus, yes, the Exodus. God rescued them from Egypt. They were talking about the Exodus when they were in captivity. That's seditious. But that's what got them through. Although things around them would say the opposite, they could say, how great are the feet on the mountain to bring good news, to, bring, to proclaim peace, to bring good tidings, to proclaim salvation, to say to Zion, your God reigns. They can say, your God reigns, even though everything around them would say the opposite. We need to do the same. Because they were, they were exiles, as we are currently exiles in a post-Christian context. <clears throat> Let's see. Christian, uh, a point within here is that Christians tend to grow under persecution. Aaron talked about this a little bit last week. And when you look at the early church fathers, when you look at Christians that are persecuted now, you see faith just growing like fire. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. John Huss, who is a Czech reformer, he was a reformer before the reformers. He uh, influenced Martin Luther and John Calvin. You don't hear, him, hear about him much. He said, do not believe that I have taught anything but the truth. I have taught no error. The truths that I have taught I will seal with my blood. 
Amanda and I got to visit the church he taught at in Prague. And I, I really like this quote. This is from a letter that he wrote several days before he's burned at the stake for speaking up against the Catholic Church. He said, Therefore I say that having hope in Christ Jesus, I, Christ Jesus, I am determined when hearing the proposal to withdraw, to persevere in truth till death. Charles Spurgeon said, Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. So that's my first point, is that we're exiles. We're exiles in a post-Christian context, as Paul was alone in Athens in, this, in a very similar context. Paul saw through the, point two, Paul saw through the cultural facade straight to the idols all around him, and he became angry. We need to have a zeal for God like that of Paul. We need to always be in awe of God's glory and his holiness. I can't tell you, you I can't force you to, have, to feel his presence. I can't force you to uh, think about the glory of God. I, I can't force that on you. That's, that's prayer. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the renewing of your mind through the reading of his word. It's kind of like... Um, when I try to get my kids to do stuff, lots of times I feel like I'm Patrick Swayze and Ghost. You know, it's like, hello, hello, Sophia, stop hitting your brother in the face. Sophia, stop hitting your brother in the face. Stop hitting your brother in the face. Michael, stop poking your brother's eye. Stop poking your eye, brother's eye. Stop poking it. And it's just like, hello, am I Ghost? And that it's it's the same it's the same thing. I can't I can't force something on you. And if I can't even get my kids half time to listen to me, so. <sighs> Or it's like the sixth sense. I'm like Bruce Willis, and the only one I can see me is my wife because she can see dead people. Hmm. I love the scene with Isaiah when he sees God. Most scholars will say it was actually Jesus Christ that he saw. And he was just broken. When When the seraphim called to one another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house is filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And when Isaiah, from, this, from Isaiah, seeing the glory of God, when they were under captivity, God said, who should I send? Isaiah said, send me. He spent his entire life telling them God will rescue them, even though everything would say the contrary. That being said, when we are out in the culture, we're out in the world, we, we need to think about what, what motivates the people out in our culture, what drives them, what are their idols, what, are the, what do these people care about? Point three, Paul engaged the culture around him that was much like ours today. We must engage the world. Be in the world, as, you, as you've heard, be in the world, but not of it. A good example of engaging the culture would be Jesus in John 4. So here's a, a picture of Palestine at the time of Jesus. And there was, in John 4, he's, he's going to be traveling from Judea up to Galilee, if you see Judea is kind of in the bottom, Galilee's at the top, Samaria is right through the center. 
And what the story is about is it's about Jesus going through Samaria. Well, in that time, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised them because the Samaritans were mixed blood between the Jews and the Assyrians. When the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, they intermingled with them and they interbred with them. So the Jews despised them. So the Jews, what they would do is they'd actually go around Samaria, which would take a much longer time to get to Galilee because they despised them so much. Jesus went straight into Samaria. He broke through two cultural walls. First of all, he spoke to a Samaritan. Second of all, the Samaritan was a woman. Jesus engaged the culture. Paul was not ignorant of the culture around him. We need to understand the culture around us and use that understanding when we share the gospel in a post-Christian context. And a more modern example that I can think of is the Elliot, Jim Elliot and the story of him over in Ecuador. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie End of the Spear, but it's about the missionaries in 1941, I believe, that went down to make contact with this tribe. And they were, they were killed by the tribe. And then the same missionaries' families went back and eventually evangelized to them and the tribe became believers. But the way they witnessed to them is they knew that the tribe, the way they referred to like a creator God, it wasn't exactly the God, our God, of the God of the Bible. It was, an, it was kind of a God that was in everything, in animals and, and, and creation. It was a very pagan or oneness idea. But they had to use this terminology so they'd have any kind of understanding what they were talking about. So what they did is they, when they talked about God the Father, they would use the term Wanganji, which is what the, the Hudani people, which is that's the tribe, they thought of this creator God as Wangangi. And so Jim Elliott and the missionaries would use that when they're talking about God the Father. But then they had another term for, uh, for God, which was Itota, I-T-O-T-A. And that was, the missionaries used that to refer to Jesus. And so when they would be witnessing to the Hudani people, they would talk about Itata, which is the son of Wanganji. And so that was how they were able to relate with these people and share the gospel they weren't ignorant. They just didn't go down there and throw a Bible at them and say, you need to understand this exactly how we understand it. There needs to be credibility and not ignorance. Paul was well-versed. He wasn't some southern Bible-thumping, uh, just throwing Bible verses out there, not knowing what he's talking about. He was a Jew and a Pharisee, so he was an expert in the law. He probably memorized the first five books of the Bible. So when he reasoned with the Jews, he wasn't ignorant of what the Jews believed. He was a Roman citizen. He had special knowledge of military and politics. He was Greek by heritage. He was exposed to Greek art and philosophy. He, he was well-read and he was well-traveled. Paul quoted pagan philosophers back at him. It's brilliant. They thought he was a babbler. He didn't know what he was talking about. He's sitting there quoting verses that or pagan uh, poetry that they knew. John did the same thing in the book of John when he talked about the Logos, and here's that word Logos again, about the Logos becoming flesh. John first came at the Jews when he said, in the beginning, the Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about the Genesis account. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. Now he brings in the Greek philosophical term that the Gentiles would understand. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Logos was thought to, the, the term Logos was thought to originate from the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Heraclitus, back around 535 BC, who was a native of the Greek city Ephesus. 
Logos was an important term in philosophy to mean a ground, a word, a reason. Like I said, the Stoics took the Logos as the active reason behind the universe and that all of us have kind of this divine portion of the Logos. Philo adopted the term in a Jewish philosophy, and then even now it's used in non-biblical ways by analytical thought by Carl Jung and Sufism, which is the mystical dimension of Islam. So it was brilliant. John uses it. uh, Paul uses it. They weren't ignorant of what they were doing. They knew exactly the audience they were reaching. Tertullian said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He was Tertullian, which was an early church father, he was trying to say that we can completely separate any kind of philosophy away from Christianity, but Tertullian used philosophy to defend his own positions. It's not to say that Greek philosophy was good for the church. There was a lot of bad influence from Greek philosophy that crept into the church and still creeps into the church, but it's, it's, it's hard to really say where the philosophy stops, and, and it's just to say that you've got to completely divorce philosophy away. Do we not study philosophy at all, and we just read the Bible? Well, then we, we have no way of kind of relating with our current culture if we have no, no idea of, like, where they're coming from. My next point I draw out, number four, is we are to love others. Humans are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And we do need to remember this when we are in the world. Even I myself, as a personal example, I fail to do this all the time. I'll be looking at people, somebody in the car next to me. It doesn't have to be the color of their skin. It doesn't have to be whether they're male or female. It can be, you know, where they're at in the social, social class. It, it, it really doesn't matter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Judging makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. For by judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace with which others are just entitled to as we are. Not add to that that none of us are actually entitled to God's grace. It was a gift. God gave it to us. Francis Schaeffer said, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. My fifth point. Stand firm in the truth in a culture that does not care about ultimate truths. Let your lives reflect the truth of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, or Ephesians six thirteen. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. R.C. Sproul says, How can someone say he loves God but not care about truth? Then point number six, it will cost us to live missionally. Paul was mocked from all sides in Athens. That wasn't the only situation, though. Paul, through his entire ministry, you remember, he was people tried to stone him to death. He was shipwrecked. I think that's in, was it 1 Corinthians? Where he, was it 1 Corinthians where he lays out everything that's happened to him? Uh, I think it, I don't know. I think it's 1 Corinthians. But he just, he, he, it cost him a lot. People will mock us in this current culture. It, it, it may be, a, they may be up front and just mock you to your face, or they may talk about you behind your back, or we may just see people being indifferent about it. We'll spend, 
we'll, we won't think we make any kind of change, and us being impatient people will think that we're not doing something right, when really it's all the Holy Spirit and it's God's work. Now, in a post-Christian context, people care more about the relationships than the truth. And so we could spend our entire lives trying to build relationships and building this relationship our entire life and not see any kind of fruit from it. So it'll cost us a lot. Point seven, love within the body of believers is the ultimate apologetic. If you're not familiar with the term apologetic, it just means a defense of our faith. It doesn't mean that we apologize for believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that we believe the Bible is the inerrant inerrant word of God. It's just a defense of our faith. As Peter says in uh, 2 Peter, or is it 1 Peter, he talks about always always having a reason for your faith when somebody asks you and do it with gentleness and respect. That's where that idea, uh, apologetics, comes from, apologia. The divisions and the strife within the church do the opposite of showing people what the Christian church is supposed to be, what the members within the body are supposed to be. So we always got to be aware of that as well. I I talked to a a pastor a while back, and he was talking about how he doesn't really get on Facebook much anymore because he would post something. All of a sudden, there would be Christians arguing back and forth on Facebook, and he's saying just people seeing these Christians, the way they were talking to one another, it's like, how does that how does that show people the love of Christ, you know? How how does how is that a witness of how the church is supposed to be? Why would somebody want to be a member of the body of Christ when they treat each other like this? Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Paul says in first Corinthians twelve twenty five that there may be no division within the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16. As I mentioned before, prayer and the renewing of our minds in God's word is the eighth point. It's, it's an obvious one. I could have put, actually put it at the, the first point because that's really the big thing. It takes prayer and it takes, it takes the reading of God's word and just meditating on God's word. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more, no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Corey Ten Boom said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Rejoice always. Pray continuously and give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-17 Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2 We need to always be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We should spend our entire lives learning the gospel. We never graduate past it. We never get better than just understanding the gospel. It's all about Jesus. Exactly what we're talking about at Element Church. I like uh, Mark Driscoll. I, there, if you YouTube why I hate religion, he mentions in there, he talks about a lot of these moralist religious people, they think of people in two different categories. You have the good people and you have the bad people. Well, how do you know the good people? Because that's how I am. How do you know the bad people? Because that's how I am not. 
And he says, if, if the world was an old Western, uh, we would all be wearing black hats and Jesus would be the only one wearing a white hat. I just like how he, how he explained that. I'm leaving a little bit more. I'm, I'm leaving about 10 minutes for questions and comments because this is the last class of this um, course. I didn't know if Aaron had anything that he wanted to talk about or if you guys have questions about you know, what the vision of this is or if you had questions about what I talked about tonight. So I'll leave it open for questions first. Questions? If you want to, uh, the, the resources down here are really good as well. Where I get this idea of us being exiles in a post-Christian context is Michael Frost. I have a link to the video there. A missionologist, they're just, uh, their, whole full, uh, their whole purpose is to, uh, is to teach about missions. How do we do missions in the world? How do we, how do, we do missions in the culture around us? And then I've got this one by John MacArthur on Acts 17. That's a good resource. Uh, Tim Keller. So there's, there's plenty of resources there for, for if you want to look into this further. So the next one that we'll do of these is going to be in March. I think it's March 4th or 6th, or that Wednesday night is. And we're actually going to talk about apologetics. It's going to be what apologetics is, and then how do you actually give a reasonable defense for the gospel without being a butthole? <laughs> With gentleness and respect. Right? Gentleness and respect. Because because a lot of times, you know, we we want everybody to have orthodoxy, but we don't we don't go about it with what's called orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is right practice, and we just want people to have the right doctrine. We don't really care about their practice. We need I mean our practice is what people are gonna see. And so in both of those things they come together. So we have to and explaining, you know, what the gospel is and, and defending the gospel, because we should. You know, we defend our God, but we do it in a way of the right practice like Jesus did. So that's, that's going to kind of be, and that one will be six weeks instead of four. So the question was, how do we, how do we relate that now? Because things seem a lot more scattered. Is that what you're asking? It's because back then, it's there is no Mars Hill to go there, to. yeah, there is no Mars Hill to go to. I think the most important thing first is building relationships. Now, Santa Maria is not really a metropolitan. It's not like we're living in New York you know, uh, or that we're living in San Francisco where you really get hit with paganism and a whole different culture. Uh, so it's a little bit different here. It seems like there's a lot of kind of religious background. 
but that's that's probably actually who we would be looking at because I've I see a lot of people where it seems like it's about the morality, it's about the moral framework. And for us, I think it would actually be more engaging those type and, and share and building a, a relationship with those people. I don't really, I don't see a lot of the paganism around me here as much, but uh, in a city, you'll see a lot of it because that's kind of where all the ideas come from. They start in the city and they move to the smaller areas. Um, but I think, uh, do you have anything to ex- to go off of, on that? Well, I think what you said is perfect. It's, it's about relationships because. I mean, you don't have a Mars Hill, but at a lot of workplaces, you have your water cooler. You know, you have everybody eats lunch, and that's kind of the same thing, because everybody sits down, they eat lunch, and it's just a hodgepodge of ideas which people throw out. That's a perfect place to start those relationships and those discussions. I mean, you don't sit down and go, yeah, how about the Dodgers last night? Oh, and let's talk about Jesus. You know, <laughs> that's just awkward and weird, but, you know, you, you do it in a way where you listen to the ideas, and then you can actually speak some truth in that from the things that they're saying because you our Mars Hill aren't as big as that ours are small and so and but but there's also a lot more believers now than there were when Paul went to the Mars Hill and so we we are in every part of society which means that we should be able to step into those and be able to build those relationships like Paul said but be able to speak into that in a way that that makes sense I mean it's not you're not going to change somebody's idea tomorrow about everything, but but that slow relationship and and the constant coming back to what the truth is, and I mean, and again, a lot of it is the difference of believers' lives, because you know when when people follow Christ, it it tends to look different in somebody's life, and it's like I have people all the time when they're, they're I mean their their lives are just train wrecks. And they're like, and I hate that Jesus. And I'm like, yes, but how's your way working for you? And it's not. It's not. And it's and sometimes when you have a relationship, it's it's okay to point that out. But you've got to be in the place where you can point that out. And, and like Aaron mentioned, the small Mars Hill, that's actually really good. Um, that's how I feel at my work. So I, I, I work with someone who kids go to a private school, but they have a Zen garden in their desk. So it's kind of like, okay, like I start to think like, how does that work out? Or I have somebody who I talked about. <laughs> I never seen rake it actually. It's completely like even. Uh, and then I have a. I work with a person who I was mentioning. Yeah, I was thinking about maybe getting a tattoo. And they're like, "Your body is a temple." And it's like, okay, that's totally misquoting what Paul was saying. He was talking about having sex with temple prostitutes. But if I went at him and I just attacked him at, at that, that wouldn't. That would have probably shut off that ministry I had to that person, that's that kind of that, that moral religious side. So I think it, when what I see, there's actually more of a, a moral religious Pharisee, I, I think, uh, in what I, what I see. I don't know how your guy, you know, who you guys interact with, but that's what I see. Well, you talk, I, I heard somewhere in here again about not judging, and I know it says in the Bible not to judge, but you talked about in one of your sermons, I think it was a student summer sermon, a sermon that, that if we don't judge certain things, then we that we do have a right to judge certain things so we know what's... Sorry, she's talking to right. me. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I just, I, I need clarity on... On that, because the pagan thought out—it's so pervasive today, and it is per- pervasive here too, in my opinion. 
is that everybody's truth is okay. So if you don't judge that, then you're, you're making it okay in a sense. So certain judging is okay. But you, you have to be able to make distinctions. Yeah, and, and that okay. is judging, but you're not judging the worth of that person. And that and that's, I mean, in Scripture, okay. we, you know, we are called, especially other believers, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you come and hold each other accountable. Right. But when you look at somebody that you disagree with, your your disagreement is not supposed to come to the worth of that person. Okay. Because they're created in the image and likeness okay. of God. So they have dignity. They have okay. value. And so our, our judging of that truth does not diminish that person okay. who they are. Okay. Which, which, quite frankly, in our modern context is very hard because right. if you question somebody, it's right. like, how dare you? You right. just... Right. But at, at some point, there's nothing mm-hmm. to do about that. Okay. You can love that person, but right. Okay. And I, I think I think the what Aaron was talking about in the judging the stupid summer series was more on the lines of we're not if somebody's living in sin within our church, then if if they're living in sin with our church, we we shouldn't confront them because then we're judging them, and that's just a false that's a false thing. They're supposed to be church discipline, and that's kind of that idea of judging. Um, when the quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's referring to judging people just by their looks, by who they are, when we're supposed to know that they're made in the image of God. And that's kind of this idea we're supposed to have when we're, when we're out in the world, is don't judge them right when you see them. And, and when somebody makes a comment like, well, your temple's a body, and you know they're misquoting something, or if they say, well, I don't believe in God, I think that idea of not judging them is not attacking them right off the bat. But it's it's listening to them and then taking it in and then being slow with your responses. So. And I think you kind of look at it like uh, <coughs> like paganism, like a pervasive thing that is eating away and destroying someone's soul, almost like a disease. And you know, there there's the cure there, and you want to get that cure to that person. Right. And so, you know, the the way that that disease acts out in their lives may be things that are just just like nasty to them. Oh, I can't believe this is how this disease is progressing in yeah. this life. But that doesn't mean because someone has that that you hate that person or dislike that person. They may hate you for trying to help them right. with the truth. You know, right. you know bringing them the, the cure. Okay. And, and, and it makes it difficult now because uh, intolerance, the idea of tolerance has changed. It's completely changed. I mean, Francis Schaeffer said he would die to allow somebody else to have a view that was contrary to his, to be able to argue those views. And t- the terminology for tolerance has changed. It's, it's no longer you can disagree with somebody. It's all about who's the, who's the most outspoken and can win. And so it's, it's just changed. So now, you know, Christians, uh, speaking of being uh, exiles in post-Christian context, Christians like Aaron mentioned, Christians are uh, deemed as, a ter- you know, as extremists. You know, we're, we're starting to become more and more outcast um, because if we stand up for things we, that we have convictions. And uh, it's just uh, who somebody said one time that a man without tolerance is a man without convictions. And uh, it's G.K. Chesterton. And um, it's just this whole idea of being on, intolerant. It's just it's that's what makes it tough in society, too, because now you don't really want to you, you want to just kind of go along with things and and don't be considered a bigot or whatever.
Any other questions? All right. 7.30, so I'm going to go ahead and pray and then close this out. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time that we had uh, this evening, and just thank you for this series. Um, uh, hoping it it's give, informed people about the culture around us and just really uh, opened opened our eyes to and just help us to be more aware. I'm hoping this class has just uh, given us that awareness and that it will equip us to go out into the culture. And uh, like I said in week two, that it wouldn't just be uh, ideas in our head that just sit there, but that we would actually go out and that we'd be the hands and feet for you, Lord, and that we would live missionally, and knowing that it will cost us to live missionally. And just thank you for all your many blessings, and thank you for your son, Jesus, that there's nothing that we can do, and that there's just thank you for your gift of grace. In your precious name, amen.